Well, it's a good afternoon and good evening here in Australia, on the east coast of Australia. We don't go to daylight saving here in Queensland. We just get the, the cyclones and the humidity. So, um, and we only have two seasons, the wet and the dry, and we're obviously even the wet. So um, on a Thursday night, nothing surprises me anymore. Not when um, we've got Andrina Forrest, who's our co-host in the UK, when she um, unearths these amazing people. In this case, um, it's Justin Newland. So um, without further ado, Andrina, I'll hand it over to you to bring Justin thank, on board. Thank you, Jeffrey. Good morning, everybody. Good evening, good day, wherever you are in the world, or if you are listening to the replay. Today is the 25th of January, 2024. And it's with great pleasure that we have Justin Newland back on the show today. Now, Justin came on, I looked it up, and you came back, you were on the show on the 24th of March, 2022. So it's almost two years ago. Mm -hmm. My, how time flies. Anyway, welcome, Justin. It's lovely to have you back. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on the show, guys. Uh, lovely to be back. Right. So let's start from the very beginning because you're an author of five published books. You've got another one in the making. Um, you just seem to, they, the books just flow out of you and flow out of you and flow out of you like your words. Um, so when you, where were you born? Well, I was born, um, I mean, I live on the west coast of England at the moment in, near Bristol, but I was born on the east coast in a place called South End. Um, which has, bears striking similarities uh, to uh, where I live now, because it's on an estuary, it's got a pier that burns down every now and again. Um, <laughs> and, and across the water, there, there's, there's a coastline you can see. Every summer, it's invaded by drunken tourists from some major city. Um, and that's basically a lot of a description of a lot of um, English estuary towns. But that's South End for you. Oh, well, it's yeah. not a place I've been, but anyway. No, I never... well, you haven't missed it, the entry. <laughs> <laughs> Say yeah. no more. Yeah. Anyway, you so... You anything, I can tell you that. You haven't missed anything. <laughs> um, right. I'm talking about writing, because I know um, I've already read one of your books, and my gosh... For me, I'm I'm not really into thrillers and that type of book, and I just don't read anymore like I used to. I used to read all the time, but I've, I, for some reason, I just don't seem to read at this moment in time. But I know when I read your book, it was like, oh, there was just so much in there. Um, if I left it for a couple of days, I had to go back and re-read the story and the characters because mm. there was so much information in there so did were you if we go back to school days were you because like some people just write stories and it just flows out of them did you start your writing from an early age or did it come later in life well yeah i did actually um i remember writing a, no a novel a sort of and some short stories when i was a student um, right and uh, sort of trying my, 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 you know, pen to paper in those days as it was. Um, but then in sort of kind of my middle years, I did a lot of research and read a lot about history and historical periods. and got very interested in um, different historical eras. So when I came about 15 years ago to decide, well, you know, I need a project to 
keep me occupied in my later years, uh, I thought, well, you know, I've read a lot, I've done a bit of research, and they say, you know, as a writer, write about what you know about. Now, yeah. of course, when it comes down to it, we don't really know much about anything at all, but I knew a little bit about history in these periods. So I thought I'll write about ancient Egypt, I'll write about medieval China, I'll write a bit about you know, Middle Eastern Europe, and so, and so on, you know, Elizabethan England, you know, there were, and I, I finally realized as well that if you've got a passion about that particular era or what you're writing about, you're going to get readers because that passion is going to get transferred to the page. And if you're bored with the, you know, the, the period you're talking about or reading or writing, that will also transfer to the page. So it does help to be interested well, yeah. in talking about for that reason. So um, that's a bit of a, uh, a pricey, if that helps. Mm. So your very first novel, when mm. did that come about? How did it come about? And um, have you got like an open channel where you the words just flow through or... Or do you have to sit and think about the next plot or the next person? I think, yeah, probably with, with your own experience with, with healing, I imagine it's the same that, you know, I might, I might write 2,000 words in a day, and, and that generally seems to be what most authors aim for. But I wouldn't say that, you know, it, it, it all flows out in those 2,000 words. There might be... A hundred or a couple of hundred in the middle of it or towards the end where you feel you know that lovely feeling where something else is trying to write through you, mm. you know, i suppose they call it the muse or i don't know what you call it but um that that's that's the joy and satisfaction i suppose of what you aim for um you know so when for example you guys have asked me to read an extract i look for those passages that i feel have that flowing mm. and hopefully i'll maybe read one to you a bit later on yeah lovely yeah right so let's go back to the very first book when was this first book published and we, i mean i think jeff's got a picture of the the five books that you've got together so far yeah so for people to see um so which was the very first one so the first one was in the bottom left hand corner there the genes of isis so Hi. Um, that's really mythological fiction, um, and genes of Isis is another way of saying Genesis. Genesis means beginnings and origins and starting point, and it takes the story from the book of Genesis of basically fallen angels um, who, who, who mate with the, the women of the time, create a mixed genetic race called the Nephilim, and then at the end of which there's a big flood. A lot of water yeah so it's, it's a bit like where jeff is it starts very dry and ends up very wet is that right jeff so i don't i don't i tell you and, and and that has been a theme through all the novels um because i guess overall the overview of my novels is probably like yourselves i'm interested in where we are today how we got here to where we've got to today and how that makes us ready or not for what's coming tomorrow mm. so they're the, they're, you know to my mind they are the questions for 
for me, they're, they're my passion that I'm exploring um, in each of the novels in different ways. And so looking back at the first civilization, which I, you know, is generally considered to be ancient Egypt, you know, there's, there's an idea that, uh, say, in psychoanalysis, you know, a person's having trouble in their adulthood, so they go and see a psychiatrist, and he says, well, tell me about your childhood. <laughs> now, the reason they do that is they know that what, uh, in the formative period of one's life, um, that sets the blueprint for everything that follows. So using the same reasoning the first civilization is going to set the blueprint in other words the pattern or the template for what comes after it in other words all the rest of world history <laughs> um, so you know that that's that that kind of premise is is what sparks my my work and what inspired me to write uh, the genes of isis uh, which explores um, in some detail, not just uh, not just the components of our civilization, but also, you know, the very basics of who and what we are, which is, in other words, our genes. Genes of Isis, Isis, Egyptian goddess. Genes is is basically the programs that run us. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, our instinct, our moving center, our, our, our senses, all those come out of the construct of our genes. But, so that novel is a speculative account of how we've got our genes. Okay. So would you, yeah, so would you like to follow on and, and share a little about each, because <clears throat> if people haven't heard about you before, and they like what you're saying, what you're, you know, would you like to sort of follow on to, to your second book? And yeah. and so from the first book, were you already getting the storyline for the second book? Like how soon does it all happen? Well, the, the, the first book actually took um, a lot of work because I was basically learning from scratch. I, I'd never done a literary, literary degree. Uh, a lot of writers, you know, they go to Oxford or Cambridge or, you know, some, some university, they learn English lit, they're taught about structure of novels and what have you. I was kind of coming from the outside, so um, learning as I went, um, you know, getting on the bike and falling off every five minutes and getting back on again. Um, and uh, I, I guess... Actually, that book is 105,000 words published, but I reckon I probably wrote a million words. <laughs> so I actually sent it to an editor. Uh, I think the original draft was 180,000 words. And he, he gave me a lot of feedback. Um, and I ended up writing two further novels, which are published as backstory, exploring the world because it was a it was a kind of fantastical world our world but fantastical elements in it you know like the pyramids and um waters in the sky because you, you might have heard of this sort of myth where you know the, the, if you think about the flood you've got to ask how did the waters get up there in the first place for there to be a flood for 40 days so this 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 novel presupposes that the waters are up in the sky 
okay, and have been for years and years and years and circulate around and round and round. And of course, the idea is in those days that it took the sand up with them. So when they came down, the sands didn't come down all around the world. They came around the, the, the um, uh, you know, the Sahara, the Kalahari, um, and so on, around, around the tropics. And that's how the deserts were formed. Um, I don't know if you've heard that, that kind of notion, but uh, that's, that's the kind of things I explore in the novel. And, and you know, it gets, gets my passion up because I love that kind of high esoteric stuff, you know. Mm. Um, so the second book, um, after some years of, of, of reworking and working the first one, um, I decided to look at China. And the second book is called The Old Dragon's Head as you can see in the bottom right hand yeah. um, and you know the that is set on the great wall of china as the um, cover of the novel suggests you can see the you know, semblance of the great wall there um, it's actually set in a real place um, i wanted um, to also explore the outplay and impact of chinese thought and understanding on our world because i think it has had not as much an impact as as, as egypt <clears throat> excuse me but still a significant impact um, the whole essence of the ideas of family because the essence um or one of the essence of this confucian thought is that the family is the microcosm of the state if you like um, which is the macrocosm um, and so if, if the family is in order and that the ordering of yang and yin and, and the masculine and feminine principles are, are in, in balance in a family, then if every family is in balance, then the state is in balance. And, and they kind of work from, you know, what they see is they see, I love this phrase at the moment, they see in the now, they see the eternal. Because in each moment, which is, of course, part of the eternal, um, they, they, they see the importance of the small things in the big things, the family in the state, and so on. So uh, they have this idea that the yellow land, because they, they have a yellow emperor who sits on the dragon throne, is occupied by a supernatural or numinous dragon. So that's, I don't, I don't make this stuff up. History <laughs> wonderful um and this dragon partly occupies the great wall would you believe and will rise up and defend its northern borders if they are attacked of course the mongols who are in the north didn't work very well in, in the 13th century because they got invaded um and because they were invaded um and they believed in karma you understand the principle of karma um, they thought they were living in the wrong way to have invited the invasion. Okay. So when the Ming dynasty is founded by uh, the Hongwu Emperor, is what his name was, he sets about trying to reset um, his nation and his people to live in more in harmony with yeah. God, with uh, the spirits, with... Uh, um, with the angels, or whatever they called them. Um, and he wrote a book, or his mandarins wrote a book called The Great Ming Code. 
um, which I, I read a sort of extract of it. Um, it's quite extraordinary because it's probably the last time in world history where a state tried to impose religious ideals upon its people, religious statues, a fu fully, fully fledged religious statue, because it told them, you know, they had to make sacrifices to this God and that God. You know, they have, yeah. you know, we, we have, um, uh, what do we have? We have, uh, you know, gods of the kitchen. We, 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 we pay worship and homage to um, Saturday kitchen, right? And mastership, right? So by comparison, they had gods of the kitchen. They literally had to worship the kitchen. You know, I don't know how they did it, but they, 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 they had gods of the kitchen. So just by comparison. So I, 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 I try to get into the mindset because we think, oh, people believe in religion. But I don't think it was belief for them. I think they, they were imbued with it. They lived it. They didn't think about belief. They were in it, which is different. Um, uh, and so that's, that's what I tried to uh, conjure in the novel. Um, and to go back to the, the origin of the name, the old dragon's head. So the Great War was perceived as um, uh, running from basically from west to east. And the far eastern end of the Great War is where it meets the sea. And that's about 100 k, 100 kilometers or miles east of Beiping. So where it meets the sea is the head of the old dragon, which is the old dragon's head. So it's a real place. Um, and that provided the setting for my second novel, which is historical fiction and is set in 1400 the, during a historical period. So I, you know, I read up about the history of the time <clears throat> how there was a war of succession between the, the emperor who just died, his, his son and his grandson, um, and sort of placed, placed the, the hero and some of the characters um, in that setting, one of whom was, um, um, was, was quite difficult, as you might know if you've seen or read of, of that period, is trying to include um, women in the story because they had such a, um, uh, they, they weren't given a prominent role in life in those days, uh, not a visible one anyway. Um, so I managed to find one, and she was a seer, um, and people went to see her um, because I, I wanted to use um, the whole idea of the transmigration of souls, which you might be familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, the the um, the Buddhists have this notion of choosing the the, the, the Tibetan Lama. Um, they, they don't sort of vote it like the, the the Christian folks do on the next Pope. They assume that the soul of the dead Lama, the the top Lama, um, the Dalai Lama, has gone to somebody else. And they then have to wait a few years before they can identify who it's gone to. Because <laughs> it goes to a child that's just being born. Mm. So I had this conception that this, this, this lady uh, in the story 
um, she was the house, or she she occupied a PO office. A what? A PO office. Now you think, what's he talking about? Well, a PO is Chinese name for a soul. Mm, okay. So what she did, what what people would do, and this is this is I don't know if it's true. That's just fictional. I that's a lovely idea of it. <laughs> But when a person was about to die, they would go to her PO office and give her an envelope with some details about their person and their life and some sort of insignia. Um, uh, and the idea was that whoever then inherited that person's soul would go to her PO office and she would identify the envelope uh, and give them uh, the envelope with the details of the person's life. And the two combining features which linked the two people was that they had a birthmark in the same place. They had the same birthmark. And that's what would be on the envelope. So she was, um, she was a midwife for two lost souls, if you like. So that was the kind of story I played with. I love that kind of stuff. So. Wow. Fascinating. <laughs> it is, isn't it? But that's, you know, that's all there for for folks to to read about. I'm sure yeah. some, some 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 folks are familiar with that 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 concept. That's just one element of the story. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff about the bagua, the, the I Ching, mm. uh, you know, the, the the tools of divination. Um, I mean, I realised that even in the construction of of this this wall. Um, and and the wall um, around that area, the Chinese had, had used the principles of um, uh, uh, of the Tao in, in constructing. So the water was in the right place. In the you know, had to be in the east or something. Um, there had to be mountains to the west. There had to be sea to the you know, and it was all configured. So that this was in line in harmony with the natural forces. Mm. So in a way, they're healing the land. And I'm sure you, you, you're familiar. Yeah, with like that. feng shui, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it's all in line with the principles of feng shui. So yeah, I, I, you can tell I'm sort of fascinated by it. Or oh, I actually thinking about having another you, area. Have you been there at all to China? I haven't. No, I'm afraid. Is it on your to-do list? Not really. Uh, no. it's, it's a hell of a trek. Um, it, yeah, but, but no, it's not. Um, but you never know. Yeah, oh, yeah. you yeah. never know. Yeah, you never know. Okay. So, yeah, you can see it goes uphill and down dale. So you can, you know, it's got this kind of sinuous nature, the, the shape uh, of, of the of the, um, the 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 wall itself. So you can imagine that it naturally fits with the idea of a, of a dragon with its, its looping um, um, uh, structure. You know. Yeah, very atmospheric. Mm, very, right. So mm. so that's book two. Yeah. Let, let's go on to book three. So that was another historical fiction story, um, which was this time set in uh, Eastern Europe. It was called the Coronation, um, and the cover there is in the top right-hand corner. Mm. Screen. Um, and what I was exploring in that novel um, 
is set in a place called what is now Kaliningrad, actually, in Russia. Uh, it's, it's an oblast or a province stuck between Poland and Lithuania. Uh, back in the day, it was called Konigsberg. And Konigsberg was King Frederick the Great's um, capital in 1760. Um, and I, got, I, I chose that particular location because I thought that was one of the few areas in the world, in Eastern Europe and Prussia, where the, the feudal system actually worked to how it was meant to work. And I wanted to use that as a comparison to what was then on setting, if you like, which was uh, capitalism. Because the 1760s was the decade in which um, James Watt made his discovery of the steam engine. And basically that was the genesis of the uh, modern realm, the modern era, the world we live in today. You know, it would not be as it is if we didn't have industrialization. Mm. I'll give you a comparison. <clears throat> you go into a shoe shop, a cobbler's, a cordwain's in 1760, right? When he made his discovery. What do you find? What do you see? Andrina, what do you see? Any ideas? Excuse me. Right, in a cobbler's shop. Yes. <laughs> well, lots of souls. <laughs> That's right. Do you see any shoes? Uh, yeah, we may get a few. I don't think you do. No? No, I don't think so. Because how does he know what size? So not not shoes for repairing? Ah, uh, maybe shoes for repairing, yes. That's, that's <clears> what I'm thinking of. But not not new shoes. Right, so not one new shoe, 1760. A lot of lot of soles and repairs, right. You go back 7,000 years to Jericho, say, 5,000 BC, you go into a cobbler's, do you see anything different? I don't think so. The point being, for 7,000 years, nothing changes where cobblers are concerned. So if you're standing in a cobbler's in 1760s and you're looking ahead for 250 years, you're going to think, well, actually, nothing's going to change because it's been the same for 7,000 years. So if I go into a cobbler's in 2024, I'm going to see the same thing. I'm going to see a load of soles, a load of leather, and a few repairs. Oh no, because if you go to streets near where you are entering, yes. you go to the Clarks, and they are the manufacturers of shoes on every high street in the UK. And there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pairs of shoes in that store. And that's the comparison. And that's just one thing, that's cobblers. And it is cobblers, isn't it? <laughs> But, you know, you go into a supermarket, this huge amount of stock. And for what? You know, you go into a butcher's in, in 1760. They didn't have that amount of stock. They didn't have supermarkets. The point I'm making is industrialization has flooded the world with stock. I'm not saying it's a better or worse thing. I'm just saying that's what's happened. 
that I wanted to go back to the genesis of when that changed. And that was James Watt's discovery of the steam engine. Because without industrialization, without factories, without mass migration, which we still got today, you, you know, you would not have the world we have today. Mm, um, and so that was the beginning, capitalism and the end of the feudal era. Um, so that was the story, the, the bigger picture story I wanted to explore. The backstory to those days was also the Seven Years' War, which was between Austria, Russia, who were Catholic, and uh, Prussia, which was Protestant. Uh, the English, who happened to be fighting the French in Canada, because they're always fighting the French. Um, uh, they happened to be quite a rich country at the time, because it was peak of empire and all the rest of it. We're not a rich country anymore. But anyway, uh, so they, they were kind enough to pay King Frederick the Great's army's payroll. That was nice of them, wasn't it? <laughs> but at the same time, I read the other day, just, just so you know, um, some, some American diplomats were in Paris trying to get a loan from the French to sponsor um, the War of Independence against the Brits. And they got it. They got £8,000, apparently. Really? 8,000 quid, yeah. So <laughs> lots of things were going on in those days. And of course, that, that result in 1776, a few years later, you got the Declaration of Independence. So, so that's a bit about the second novel, um, but it's set in, in this area, I said, called the third novel, Konigsberg. Um, and what, what I'm kind of picturing in those days is that the, the question I'm posing is, uh, I suppose a spiritual question was with the energies that got used for the vision that resulted in the Industrial Revolution. Were they meant for something else? Were we, were, were the, was the human race meant to take a different route? Mm. Were we meant to go down the industrial route or were we meant to go down a different route? And if so, what was that route and why didn't we take it? So they're the kind of questions I was trying to pose in that, because clearly we took the industrial route, um, and now we live in a society beset with uh, worries about money, um, and, and for better or for worse. So anyway, that's a bit about the third book. Right. Yeah, because you're giving people uh, a taste or an appetite if that you know when the war what you're sharing. You know, listeners are thinking, oh, I like the sound of that. I'll uh, go and go and get that book or what have you. Yeah, thank you. Okay. So, books. Yeah, book four. I mean, I, mean, I was, four, sorry. I, I suppose another thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get, I realise I'm trying to question some of the assumptions we make about our world and how we got to uh, what we've inherited. Because you realise everything we... We've, we've got in this world, we've inherited uh, from mm. history in one way or another. Uh, so even if you walk into a Clark's shoe shop today, the way it's laid out has come from history. It's come from people being trained as designers, as shop fitters and all the rest of it, who learned their trade from somebody who did it 50 years ago, who modified it from somebody who did it 100 years ago. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. So it, it works by accretion or aggregation. 
um, a bit like a tower. That's where, if, if you like, the, um, the tower card, the tower, the fallen tower comes in. Because a tower is built on foundations. And if you don't get your foundations right, the ecology will test it. And ecology is tested by things like lightning strikes. Jeff will tell you all about those. <laughs> well, there's a lightning strike on the fallen tower. If you know your tower. Do you know the tower? And he lives in Tower Street. He doesn't, does he? <laughs> on the corner. <laughs> yeah, he never told me. <laughs> He's, he's got the he's got the frogs going in the background, so he's muted himself. <laughs> Otherwise, they'll be taking over the show. Really? <laughs> I, I was waking up this morning. I mean, I tell you, I, I love this kind of stuff. I was listening to the birds sing, and I wonder. I I heard this 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 uh, explanation of why birds sing. And then what happens is that the, the planet gets washed with lovely silver force, which comes from the east. And it fills the bird up. And they can't stop. They have to sing. So actually what you're listening to is a robotic response because they have no choice. Even though the song is beautiful to our ears, they are expressing... Um, their delight, if you like, that's how we see it, at processing this 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 high force, this very high force, um, the force that comes at dawn, just as, you know, we're washed by um, a gust of gold at dusk. That's why it's called August, A-U gust. A-U is the chemical symbol for gold. No, oh, it's, it's my comma. Okay. Can I just take a pause there and leave you for a moment? You certainly can. <laughs> okay. It's all right. Yeah, so um, it's quite enthralling, isn't it, for um, an individual? What do you say? He's 80 years old. No, he's never 80 years old. <laughs> uh, you made that uh, up. Oh, well, he's an author. <laughs> he's writing fiction. With a collar of my lady, she she wants me to give her a collar. So, fourth book is it? Yeah, is it the coronation or the abdication? The abdication. The abdication. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you can see um, they aren't a pairing, but you can see after a coronation you might get an abdication. So um, you understand that the coronation was not about a king or a queen, um, but. I was playing with the notion that if there is going to be an evolution in human in the human race, it's going to be in the head. It's the only thing, you know, there's no point in growing another finger or growing another leg, right? What's going to happen, if anything's going to happen at all, is it's going to happen in the head. You know, it's going to, there's going to be a great mission, you know, a greater... DSP, greater clairvoyance, greater, um, greater perception, greater understanding of the way of the world. You know, so it, 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 it's, it's, it's in the mental and higher emotional processes. So the coronation had that in mind, if you like. So the, the corona of the sun uh, is where the word comes from. Um, and, and the corona is, is, you know, you put a 
in a coronation, you put a crown on somebody's head. So in the abdication, I wanted to explore a bit more about what I call a human deal. You know, what was the deal here? Uh, here we are in this place. We're, we're born in a human body. It's got these magnificent capabilities. It, it can, it, it's self-programming um, to, to the utmost degree. You can teach it to do anything. And it will do it, it will replay it. Um, quite extraordinary capabilities. But what's it all for? Um, and I wanted to explore some of the more spiritual elements in, in the application, because I suppose the, the opening lines, uh, the idea of the book is, uh, because in the 1760s, uh, the coronation, there was a lot about Homo sapiens sapiens, which is the name of our genus. Sapiens means wise. So if uh, you have a house right, and the lintel on the house says Homo sapiens sapiens, so the house is called humanity, if you like. So in the house lives wisdom, because that's what sapiens means. And in the house, alongside wisdom, the brothers and sisters of wisdom, are things like care, consideration, kindness, warmth, um, benevolence. Are you with me? Yeah. They are its sisters and brothers of, of wisdom, perception, understanding. Okay. So then you can say, well, if that's what lives in the house, then there's certain things that can't, don't belong in there. Well, one of those things will be cruelty. So that's the basic notion of abdication, because it's basically saying, if one is cruel, one abdicates from being human, mm. at least in that moment. And of course, unfortunately, we're, we're all subject to that criteria, if you like. I mean, it's, it's a harsh criteria. It's a bit like, you know, the weighing of the heart against the feather. I mean, for God's sake, <laughs> a feather? I was speaking to a friend of mine yesterday about this. He said, he said I want a heavy feather. Because, <laughs> I mean, when, it, when is your heart lighter than a feather? For God's sake. <laughs> Extraordinary conception. I mean, who, who ever came up with that one? Um, you know, uh, anyway. So the abdication is about a young woman. And the, the backstory is, I, wanted, I, I learned from... Uh, the old dragon's head, that a setting is really important for a novel. And I imagine this ravine. Um, uh, on one side of the ravine was a town called Unity. And in Unity, an embryonic human race lived in harmony with a bunch of angels. So we go back to the angels. Um, but at the time, they don't, they are like the birds. They're like the bees, they're like flowers, they're like animals. They don't have free will. So one day, the world changes and they're given free will. And being a bloody-minded lot, they build a bridge across this ravine and they build a town on the other side called... Um, uh, they, build a, they build this sort of rope bridge and live on the other side in their town. Um, and they 
agreed to have this kind of communion with the angels. But after a while, somebody walks across the bridge and they fall off. So the folks in the town begin to think that they are now opposed by a bunch of demons who have changed from being angels because somebody's fallen off the bridge. So there, there then becomes this there is to their um, to the angels, which was supposed to be their evolutionary enhancement, if you like. Um, and then uh, a young woman who still believes that the angels are in this town for unity arrives in the town, trying to cross the bridge, um, and it's about her journey of. And the tests she has to go through and she has to try and persuade all the people that she what she believes is still true and so that's the sense of the abdication um, and the sort of trials and tribulations that this young woman goes through trying to cross the bridge to get back to the angels so of course you know one of the notions in the story uh and it's a bit like et because I, I once heard somebody say that et is a religious film and I thought, well, how can E.T. be a religious film? But it is a religious film. It's about going home. And what the what is religious about that is, of course, that is what your spirit wants to do. It wants to go home from where it came from. As soon as we land. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, it doesn't... It, 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 it sort of belongs here, it belongs in the, the biological shielding that we call this body, but it needs all that to stay here, you know, and we just walk it around trying to take it to places where it gets enhanced. So that was the kind of metaphor I'm trying to use in the story of the abdication. Um, yeah, so that that's a novel, that's not historical in that sense. <coughs> so that was the fourth one, so we better get on to the fifth one because we're yeah, running out yeah. <laughs> no but it's amazing like you know like you're covering history so much history and it's like oh yeah and you, you know things that you forget about or on the back burner or things you remember you learned at school and like mm -hmm. how you're bringing them all in you know it's um it's a, the gift that you have in your writing i guess so yeah <laughs> what do you mean you guess so <laughs> you do well, yes, yes, I do. Um, what I'm what I'm cautious about. The reason I respond like that is that uh, you know, like you get these these surveys, and they want to know, you know, when you went to the shop, how many out of ten would you give it? Oh yeah. Um, somebody says, "Oh, I, I I thought it was perfect. So I'm going to give ten out of ten. So I'm always wary of ten out of ten because it means there's no room for improvement. Mm. So I suppose one of the ways I sort of, I don't reject, uh, you know, praise, but I'm wary of it because I, I don't want to give myself 10 out of 10, if you see what I'm saying, because otherwise I stop. Yeah. There's no room for improvement. Mm -hmm. So uh, are we on to the next one? Do you want to do that? Yeah, yeah, let's go for the next one. Okay, so that's the mark of the Salomon. Your latest novel. So, you know, I've mentioned that there are some themes in these previous novels which are to do with coming of age. Uh, they tend to have young protagonists 
but what I call mature themes, you know, exploring these spiritual dimensions, um, esoteric ideas, and so on. So I wanted to come home to England, uh, that's my home country, and explore what I consider to be England's coming of age, which was, uh, to my mind, the Elizabethan era. Um, and what I mean by coming of age is that there was something substantially different to what happened afterwards to what went on before. So in, in English history, for, for, for just to, to remind ourselves, you know, up until the 14, uh, 1580s, uh, England was a kind of misty isle on the edge of mainland Europe. But after folks like John Dee um, and Queen Elizabeth, of course, um, uh, Francis Drake, um, you know, and, and, and William Shakespeare and so on, a few hundred years later, you had uh, the Greenwich Meridian, where you have zero degrees. The center of the world, if you like, is going through Greenwich. So from going from um, you know, a misty eye on the edge of Europe. Suddenly, the country's at the middle of the middle of the world. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you get my point. So, I wanted to explore that transitional period, which started that change. Um, because the Greenwich Meridian didn't come about, I, I think, until the, the 17th or 18th century. But the change began in the Elizabethan era. And I wanted to um, explore some of the dynamics of that time. Um, and it, 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 the main character is, is a young man who is a Flemish immigrant. Um, unfortunately, some of the names of the crew of Francis Drake's Golden Hind are well known. Um, and I list them in the beginning of the book. And one of them is a guy named Nelly, N-E-L-E. So I, I changed the name to Neelan, uh, which I thought was a bit more um, commonplace. Um, and he, he apparently was a Flemish immigrant. So I wondered how a man from northern France ended up sailing around the world with Francis Drake's golden hind. So that's what was the genesis of the story, if you like. So I made up the whole story to explain how it happened. At the same time, trying to trying to get, you know, I think I think what I tried to do is get inside what it was like to live inside his body, what what he felt, what he smelled, what he lived, what his desires were, how he was conditioned to think about his his world, um, which I think is kind of the way you have to approach these things because I think. In different ways, we're all we're all conditioned to think about our world in a very particular way, um, and I suppose one of the one of the attractions of writing historical fiction is, is that I can step outside yeah. my condition for a little while um, uh, and and try to appreciate how other people thought about their world. So the the mark of the salamander, I mean. The origin of that, that title, um, back in medieval times, there was um, quite a lot of esoteric philosophy going on. And there was a guy named Paraclesis, who was a Swiss um, 
occultist, if you like. There was quite a lot of occult stuff going on in these days. You know, John Dee, who, who I mentioned, he wrote a book about his conversations with an angel called Medima, who I actually feature in the novel. Um, and um, uh, this guy, Paraclesis, came up with the idea that whilst we have earth, air, fire and water, the four elements, each of those elements has a spirit, uh, an esoteric spirit associated with it. So you're probably familiar with the idea of a gnome, G-N-O-M-E. And he said, a gnome is the spirit of earth. An undine is the spirit of water, and a sylph is the spirit of air, and a salamander is a spirit of fire. So I wanted to explore this whole thing about, uh, if you like, living fire. You know, like spirit is, is, is a piece of living fire. I've heard it called a spoonful of God, which is another wonderful description. Um, uh, and um, John D was the first 007. I'm just reading. <laughs> it's yeah. cool, isn't it? Yeah, he was, isn't he? Yeah, in fact, my story features um, um, uh, this, the, in the second novel, which I, I might mention, um, that the hero, Neelan, becomes a, an agent for Francis Walshingham, who was the Queen's spy master. And he uses his sort of prescient abilities, his astral abilities, to predict the crimes that are going to happen. Because, of course, that's what a, a forward-looking police force would be doing, wouldn't they? Um, but anyway... I mean, it has been featured in, in, in some stories, hasn't it? But uh, that's another one. So the salamander, yeah. So he, the story, uh, Neelan, has a fascination with fire. And that's what gives him this, this, this mark. What he has is three little lines, three little squiggly lines beneath... Can you the, share what a salamander is for people that don't know? Yeah. They're, um, I, I did send you a picture. Um, yeah. Um, it is actually a lizard. Uh, it has a sort of physical manifestation, but in my in my story, um, it's it's obviously a, a spirit. Um, so I imagine imagined it to to be like a lizard-like uh, uh, spirit, um, a sort of lithe, you know, with with, with sort of flames and um, uh, and so on. I, I don't know if you've ever heard of something called uh, Saint Elmo's fire. Yeah. Uh, so I got into a whole lot of stuff about fire and, and um, its different manifestations. So St. Elmo's fire is when you get electrical storms at sea and you get this, this kind of numinous lightning that appears around the masts of ships. And that's what the, the sailors call St. Elmo's fire. And <laughs> dear old St. Elmo, if you know the story, apparently they call it St. Elmo's fire because the poor soul was hit by lightning, but survived. <laughs> and for his troubles, they called it St. Elmo's Fire. So, poor fellows, that's how he's remembered. But anyway, um, you pick up all these, these um, random bits of information. Yeah, I bet. Then, yeah, you research all this stuff. So, anyway, the mark of Salomon, as I was saying, is, is Leland has these three little lines beneath his index finger, and they are the mark. That's the mark. So they appear on his hand. So if he rubs the, the, the hand, that, that mark, then sometimes he would get 
these sort of astral visions and it would transport into the astral worlds and he could do astral travel which i'm sure you've come across in your own studies and researches and possibly even do a little bit yourself you've done a bit of astral traveling <laughs> A little bit, yes. Just a little bit. So, <laughs> so I sent you a, um, a couple of conjectures, didn't I? I sent you yeah. um, from, from ancient Egypt. I don't know if you've got them there. Um, yeah, did you, if, if you've got the picture of the salamander there, Jeff, that um, Justin sent us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a whole lot of stuff about astral traveling. Um, and the, the story, <laughs> and see, we're, we're running out of time here. Um, that's all right. Uh, the, the you're going to read us a snapshot of your book. Oh, yeah, should I? <laughs> um, this is from chapter 19. It's called Home at Last. So basically, Neelan has sailed around the world um, with Francis Drake, which is an extraordinary journey in itself, considering most people in those days never went further. Oh, than, there we are. Yeah, there, there's a the salamander brooch, which actually features in the story. Uh, this was found on a Spanish vessel off Northern Ireland, I think. Um, but I used it in the novel because I thought it gives, uh, it gives some physical description to yeah. what folks might imagine a salamander to be. Um, you see the sort of gold, um, the, the gold filigree and the, uh, and, and the red rubies. Um, um, so th here's a little extract um, from, uh, from the novel. It was midway through the afternoon watch on a Monday. It wasn't any old Monday. It was a special Monday. Not because of an extra beer ration, nor because of the smell of fish emanated from the galley. No, it was because on that autumn day, Nearly all 58 surviving crew members hung over the gunwale, their eyes dripping with expectation and glued to the horizon. On occasion, they glanced up at the topmast and the barrowman as if waiting for a message from the heavens. None came, even after they passed the Isles of Scilly, nor did it come after they passed the Wolf Rock. It surely wouldn't be long coming. As the creaking of the sails ceased, the golden hind glided serenely through the waters, as if drawn forward by a divine wind. Even the gulls stopped squawking. A light rain shower washed the decks. The men gazed at the white flecks on the waves. Amidst the choir, a cry went out and travelled down the mizzen mast, across the poop deck and into the soul of every member. Land ho! Neelan stood next to Fletcher, the preacher, who raised his hands like an Old Testament prophet and cried out, Oh my God! Then he knelt on the deck, hands clasped in a prayer of thanksgiving. The other hands, all long-haired, heavily bearded and stinking of piss, ale and perspiration, planted their knees on the deck. To Neelan, this moment felt portentous. It was one of the collective is one of collective bliss in which men of all ranks, natures and ages shared a sublime experience and encountered perhaps for a few seconds only the most concentrated religious feeling in the world. That of belonging to each other and to a land. Perhaps they didn't know it fully then, 
maybe they had an inkling of it as Neelan did. But in that moment, each of them knew that through their voyage, through their endeavours and their courage, they had unchained the shackles of the past, cut most of the remaining threads of the Gordian knot of papal suppression, summoned the fresh, clean winds of the future and set the people of England on a course towards the discovery of themselves and towards an exploration of the world and its peoples. Mm. Okay. Yeah, right. so um <clears throat> fabulous. Um right, so you've completed that one and you've got another one in the making. Yeah, now that's that uh, is the Midnight of Eight, which is the sequel to this novel. I had intended to write just one novel. I don't like series, but the, the, my muse seemed to want two books. So uh, the Midnight of Eight um, uh, covers the period from 1580 after Neelan gets back from circumnavigation. It becomes uh, an agent working for Francis Walsingham, um, who had a house in a place called Barn Elms in Mortlake, um, or, or Barnes rather, uh, or east of London. And he, he kind of uses his abilities to foretell uh, the machinations of the Mary Queen of Scots and things like that. And it culminates in the repulse, not so much the defeat of the Spanish Armada. Uh, so that's the, that is the moment uh, when the Midnight of Eight takes its title. And I'm not going to explain how it takes its title, but it's quite an extraordinary set of coincidences. Um, quite extraordinary alignment of, of combinations and alignments and synchronicity, which I discovered in writing the novel. Um, so have you, uh, like, because obviously you're writing about history, have you had any sort of realisation of having a past life in any of these scenes? Ah, um, that's a good question. I don't know. Um, not specifically. Um, Gina, but it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I do wonder, you know, you, I know you talked about, you talked a little bit about healing at the beginning, healing different parts of oneself. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard the idea that you can go back to different periods of history and you can heal them. Mm. Um, I mean, that's, that's a sort of generic idea. I'm not quite sure how you do it or whether in the rewriting of these things that in some way it does offer uh, an easement, if you like, mm. uh, which is along the way to a healing, isn't it? To some of the horrific times well, uh, that, ha that have happened and still happen, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So how far are you with book what six this will be how far are you that, that's actually finished it's gone to the publisher um and as i was saying um um i I've, I've got a i've got a bit of work after this to um uh, help them come up with a cover design uh write up the back cover blurb um and, and and put some finishing touches to how we'll do the marketing so that should come out um 28th of October is what they're suggesting. Okay. 
So how do you promote yourself? How do you get seen and be heard? Obviously, like uh, opportunities on shows like this, because yeah, you know, people, much. we put up your website, people can yeah. get in contact with you. You're on Facebook. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I, do, I do a lot of that. I do author talks because I've got um, books based around history. Um, what I do is I put together a little PowerPoint presentation about the history of the period and what led up to it. Um, and then do a little bit of promotion about the book at the end of it. Um, so I've got I've got eight or nine talks uh, that I give. Um, I've also written uh, a couple of talks, one called uh, History Repeats Itself, um, uh, and another one called In Search of the Spirit of the Times. Um, and so, you know, you get, get a sort of flavour of uh, what those talks might be about. Um, as well as specific talks focusing on the Elizabethan period, Egyptian period, Chinese period, Prussian period, um, and things like that. Um, and then I do book signings. I do a lot of book signings in uh, Waterstones, independent bookshops, W.H. Smiths. Um, and I really enjoy talking to people, as you can see. Um, and, you know, I, I, I find... The best people to talk to are people like yourselves, actually. You, you're a very good interviewer because um, it's not just who asks the questions, it's what asks the questions. You know, it's, 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 your, it's, it's what's coming out from you that prompts the reply. Mm. Um, um, and you can ask a question in a hundred different ways, and 99 of them will get a bland answer, but one of them will get. Uh, a 10 minute exposition mm. about what inspired the person. Do you know what I mean? So, you're a very good interviewer. <laughs> thank well, you very, thank you very much. So, a good way. Yeah. So, is there anything else that you would like to share or um, say before we close up today? Um, just, you know, to say if folks want to, you know, look me up on the website. Uh, Jeff's kindly been putting those up. Um, my books are available through. Um, Amazon through through um, can be ordered through UK bookstores, Australian bookstores, American bookstores. Um, I also do um, what are called blog tours, um, which I don't know if you know about, um, where they different bloggers will feature my book on their website. They'll do reviews. You can read reviews. It's a good way of getting them. Um, I also do interviews with with folks like yourselves. Um, I had one. Um, uh, the other day with uh, a lady in India um, oh, who had also read the book and she, she, who, who likes my writing. Um, yeah, so there's, uh, there's there's readers and authors and all around the world, aren't there? It's fantastic, really. Mm. Oh, well, wonderful. Well, it's been an absolute delight yet again because you're, like I say, you're so full of your stories and the novels and all the aspects you bring in, <clears throat> you know, giving people a flavour because uh, I think, oh, I wouldn't mind reading some of that, but you know, I got a backlog of things here that I haven't read. <laughs> <clears throat> but um, yeah, so okay. Well, if there's nothing else, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a guest this week and sharing all your information about your books. Really fascinating. And um, perhaps we'll meet up for coffee when you're up this way. Yeah, well, I am up this way. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, we talk after. <laughs> Yeah.
Can I can I share one last thing with you? Yeah, of course. You just did this. You yeah. Know you put your hands together. Do you know yeah. the origins? Do you know what this does? Well, I know it links chakras, the heart, and. You know, you get a, a horseshoe. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you get a horseshoe, what what uh, people will do is they will put what is called a keeper bar on the, the two strands of the horseshoe. It's, it's like a bar. So it's like that. That's the keeper bar and that's the horseshoe, okay? It stops the magnetism being lost, okay? So that is a keeper bar. Are you with me? Yeah, cool. It maintains the forces and elements and processes inside you. It acts as a keeper bar. That's mm. what it does. Mm. That's okay. why it's the origins of that mo movement, which we now use, obviously, in Christian ideals and so on. But if you look up keeper bars to do with horseshoes, it will tell you about what it does. Well, I've never heard of that before, so there we go. You learn yeah. something every day. Yeah, you said that, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you certainly do, gosh. Yeah. Lovely to talk to you guys. All right. Well, <laughs> there you go. Once again. Yeah. <laughs> And yes, so thank you for everybody for tuning in to Dreaming a New Dream. Yeah. Um, same time, same place next week.